All right, we'll be in Genesis chapter 17 tonight. Genesis chapter 17, I told you several weeks ago, I think I remember saying we'd circle back to Abraham before we were finished looking at the names of, of God as they're revealed here in the Old Testament. And uh, tonight, what we're going to look at is a name that's probably the most familiar of all the names of God in the Old Testament, simply because of pop culture, from the, well, Christian pop culture, I guess, from the 90s or so, Amy Grant sang a song called El Shaddai. Tried to get Amber to sing it. I at least texted her. I asked her if she had it, and she didn't. I was going to try to get her to sing it, but she didn't have it. Beautiful song. You ought to go listen to it. El Shaddai. I got a few other names of God uh, mixed in the song, uh, but it, because of the song and the popularity of the song, a lot of folks know this name. At least they know the word. But we're going to dig into it a little deeper tonight in Genesis chapter 17 and uh, beginning in verse 1. Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. It says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, as for, me, be, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you again that you do give us the opportunity to come to your house to study your word. I pray we'd be faithful to do that here. I pray that we'd be faithful to do that away from here. And I pray tonight that you'd speak to us through your word, just to enlighten our hearts and show us what you'd have us to know. And ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we get too much into the meaning of El Shaddai, into the, into the impact that name makes for us, we need to take a little stroll down uh, memory lane of what's happening here in the story of Abraham, of Abram. Now, as we just read, his name being changed to Abraham. You recall, we go back We go back to Genesis chapter 12, when God first called him. He called him out of his country, out of his home, to go to a place that he's going to show him. He said, and I will make you a great nation. And through you, all the nations, all the families of the world will be blessed. And then in Genesis chapter 13, the very next chapter, God confirmed the promise, and he added a little bit to it. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 13, God expounded upon what he told Abram. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 6, well, that's not where it was. Genesis, it wasn't in Genesis chapter 13, verse 6. Let's see if it was in, well, anyway, it's there. God confirmed it, and he added a little to it. He said, and I could find it if I stood here and looked, but we're live on the air, you know. Can't spend too much time looking for my Bible verse. I just wrote the wrong one down. God said, guess what, Abram? Your descendants are going to be as much as the dust of the earth. If you could number the dust of the earth, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And some of us, we look around our house and say, there's a lot of dust on the earth, right? That's a lot of descendants. We continue on in, in, uh, in Genesis uh, chapter 15, and uh, verse 2, Genesis 15, 2. Let's see if I wrote the right scripture down this time. Abram said, Lord God, 
what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is Elizer of Damascus. Abraham's getting ready to adopt old Elizer. He says, I got to have an heir. You promised me an heir. And it looks like I'm going to have to adopt Elizer of Damascus if I'm going to have an heir. But God's not giving up, even if Abraham sounded like he was. Look at chapter 15, verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, to Abram, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body will be your heir. Then God brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars, if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And Abram believed the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. God upped the promise Again, that's where from chapter 12, now through chapter 15, God made the promise, he continues to up it, but then we get to chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. We're reminded again that the promise has not been fulfilled. Abraham and Sarah concoct a plan and Chapter 16, if we were to read chapter 16, we'd see they concoct a plan to use the maidservant. And they're going to have an heir through her now. But, you know, when we try to help God, falls flat on his face. That's what happened to them. Their plan failed. You know the story. The world today is still affected by their bad decision. And it gets us to chapter 17 where everything looks hopeless. It says Abram was 99 years old. 25 years approximately since the promise was made. 25 years it's been since God said, leave your home, leave everything you know, and go to a country I'm going to show you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you an heir. 25 years. But not only that, it's been 13 years, when we get to chapter 17, verse 1, there's been 13 years of silence approximately between Abraham and God. Abraham hadn't heard an update on this promise in 13 years. You can imagine how discouraged he has to be as we get to chapter 17. But then God makes his presence known again. God had been there all along. God had never left. But God had been silent. Because Abraham and Sarah had been trying to do things their way, and God said, hey, you're going to try to do it your way. I'm going to let you try it. He's going to let us try if we try to do it our way. Sometimes we have to learn for ourselves that it's going to fall flat. This time God shows up. He reveals a new name that we saw there in verse 1 of chapter 17. He says, I am Almighty God. That is the name El Shaddai. Now, this is the first one of our compound names we've looked at that starts with L. Uh, we've seen the, the compound names with Jehovah. You say, well, what does El mean? Well, in my Spanish class, I learned that it meant thee. But this is Hebrew. This is not Spanish. So that doesn't help us much, okay? Uh, so that was, y'all were supposed to laugh hysterically at that. But anyway, um, we need a laugh track that Cody and they, them can play upstairs. But uh, El is the shortened form of the Hebrew, or, or, of the name for God in the Hebrew, Elohim the strong creator God. That's what the L is. That's Elohim, the strong creator God. So then we say, well, what is Shaddai? Now you get into studying that, and you get some scholars that start disagreeing on what Shaddai means. 
But the one that makes the most sense to me and the one that was most confirmed by the, the, the scholars that I studied up on and read, Shaddai infers a supply of nourishment. comes from the Hebrew root word shad, which implies a picture of a mother nursing an infant, supplying nourishment to the infant. That infant is absolutely helpless to feed himself. That infant is absolutely helpless to do just about anything unless somebody helps him. So this word Shaddai is to supply nourishment or, or to, uh, to sustain life. And so what we find in El Shaddai is that he is the creator God who sustains life. El Shaddai means that God is not only the creator, he is the sustainer. One scholar I read put it this way, El Shaddai means he is sensitive to my cry like a mother to a hungry baby, but he is strong enough to supply the answer. Isn't that a beautiful picture of our God? He is sensitive to my cry, but he is strong enough to supply the answer. Can you imagine the cry of Abraham and the cry of Sarah? They've been made, they've been made this promise. And they cry out, no doubt they cry out, and God appears and he says, I heard your cry. Don't forget, I'm the creator. He created the worlds out of nothing. Ex nihilo is the theological term. God created out of nothing. Don't you imagine God saying, I can do all that. Don't you think I can give you the air that I've promised you? I've heard your cry and I can supply the answer. Three things we need to know here from this text in response to God's revelation of himself as El Shaddai, the creator and the sustainer. And that is, he tells Abraham, he says, this is who I am. Now, let me tell you what I expect from you. I expect you, he says in verse 1, to walk before me and be blameless. He expects Abraham to walk before him and to be blameless. We're told that Noah walked with God. He tells Abraham, walk before me. Warren Wiersbe says that with revelation, there always comes responsibility. And now God's saying, here's what I expect from you. Walk before me. When we walk before God, we are ever present of the fact that his eyes are upon us. We are ever present of the fact that his eyes are upon us. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 reminds us that no creature is hidden from the sight of God. We can think we get alone by ourselves. We can think nobody sees what I'm doing. Nobody, think, nobody knows about the secret sin in my life. But guess what? The writer of Hebrews says God knows. God tells Abraham, he reminds Abraham, I know. You're to walk before me. You're to walk with the knowledge that I can see you, that my eyes are upon you. Don't you think you act a little different? When you know that God's eyes are upon you. The, the, the psalmist wrote in Psalm 91, says, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. That word Almighty is Shaddai. He says, I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in Him I will trust. Concerning this psalm and, and, and dwelling in the shadow of Shaddai, Dr. Tony Evans puts it this way, he says, in essence, it's all about where you hang out. If you dwell where God dwells, in the shelter of the Most High, he'll do his thing in your life. He will be your El Shaddai. In other words, 
God is more concerned with our presence than our activity. He's more concerned with our presence than our program. He wants a relationship with us, not just us practicing religion. But in order to dwell where God dwells, he told Abraham, your walk's got to be blameless. And now we can get hung up on this for a few minutes. We can say, there's no way I can do this because I can't live a perfect life. I mean, there's nobody who's perfect. Jesus Christ, the only one who ever walked on this earth and walked perfectly. You say, I can't do this. There's no way Abraham could have done this. You can't walk blamelessly. It sounds like a tall order, but what we need to know is what it means to walk blamelessly. The call to be blameless is not a call to perfection. It is a call to radical obedience. It is a call to trust God. Are you going to mess up? Absolutely. Is it going to be easy? No. Are you going to have some days that you walk before him better than others? Well, yes, you are. But 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To walk blamelessly before God means we walk aware of our sin. We walk knowing that he can see us. We walk aware of our sin, which means we are constantly confessing our sin before him and seeking to live a life that is more in line with what he expects, even though we fail from time to time. We trust what the writer of Lamentations said when he said his mercies are new every morning. Just because we get knocked down by sin doesn't mean we have to stay there. You remember the commercial. I've seen it. There may be a couple in the crowd that are a little too young to see it. Most of you are not too young to have known it. It was for a company called Lifeline. You probably know the little slogan. Help, I've fallen and I can't get up. Right? I've fallen and I can't get up. Isn't that the way a lot of Christians live their life? That way they, they walk their Christian walk. I've fallen and, you know, I've just, I sinned and God just has given up on me. I just, I, I've fallen down and I can't get up. But here's the thing, El Shaddai is the lifeline. He's the lifeline. He, he says, I'm the creator. I'm the one who sustains you. I'm the one that when you fall down, I can pick you back up. The blameless walk isn't a perfect walk. It's an intentional walk. And it's a walk right there with and before El Shaddai. Next thing we see is that God keeps his promise. It's always good to be reminded that God keeps his promise. We've already pointed out the progression of God's promise there in chapters 12, 13, 15, and so on. And now he says here, he says, I will make my covenant between me and you, and I'll multiply you exceedingly. First he says, I'm going to make your descendants more than the dust of the earth. And he says, I'm, I'm going to make your descendants equal to the number of the stars in the sky. Now he says, he takes it another step further. He says, I'm going to multiply you exceedingly. All Abraham was upset about is the fact that he hasn't gotten one heir. He's upset about something that's just teensy tiny in the grand scale of God's plan. He's upset that he hasn't gotten one heir. And God says, I'm not going to give you one heir. I'm going to give you a bunch. I'm going to multiply you exceedingly. You are getting so much more. 
Sometimes we might doubt whether God can do something a little bitty in our lives. And the thing is, as we look at Scripture, that's not God's, I mean, God's concerned about the small stuff in life. But Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we ask or think. That's what he's willing to do. Too many times we get caught up worried that he's not doing something a little bitty. And he's saying, I'm willing to do something so much bigger if you'll trust me. For Abraham, God said, walk blamelessly and I'll do this. But Paul told the Ephesian church what we just looked at, that God can do exceedingly abundantly. Were there conditions on that? There were conditions God put on Abraham. He said, you walk blamelessly and I'm going to multiply you exceedingly. Were there conditions that Paul placed on the Ephesian church? We'll look in Ephesians chapter 3 for just a minute. In Ephesians chapter 3, leading up to that verse about doing exceedingly abundantly, more than we ask or think, because of Paul's sentence structure, we have to start back further than I want to. Here's a funny story. You've heard of Grammarly? Have you seen the ads for Grammarly? I bought Grammarly to edit my school papers, to help me edit my school papers. And I wrote a paper not long ago that had a lot of scripture in it. And it popped up and said, this sentence is too wordy, but it was a direct quote from Paul. <laughs> and so there was nothing I could do about that. You know, I just had to click ignore on that one. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, in light of all of that, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. How does he do exceedingly abundantly? According to the power that works in us. What's the power that works in us? Well, he just got through telling us that in verses 14 through 19, but let me paraphrase it for you. It's all about possessing and showing the love of Christ. Did you read that word love all through that text? And, and, and he talks about love there. It's all about possessing and showing the love of Christ. And it makes sense because, you know, to paraphrase Jesus, when he was asked what's the greatest commandment, he said love God, and the second one is love others. And he said that fulfills all the law. You love God and you love others, you're in complete obedience. You're looking for God to do exceedingly abundantly. He says, love God, love others, show love. Because as El Shaddai, he's sensitive to the cries of our heart. And he's strong enough to supply the answer when we're obedient to him. Back in Genesis chapter 17, one last thing. Abraham's response. Abraham's response ought to be our response. And we'll just read half the verse because that gives us all of Abraham's response in verse 3. Then Abraham fell on his face. 
That's his response. God said, I'm El Shaddai. I want you to walk blamelessly before me. I'm going to fulfill my promise to you. And Abram fell on his face. He fell on his face in worship, knowing that God not only hears our cry, but that he's willing and he's able to answer that, ought to evoke worship. If all we ever look at are our circumstances, we won't worship. If all we ever look at is our own ability to fix the problem, like Abraham and Sarah had been doing, we won't worship. They hadn't been worshiping. They've been trying to scheme and come up with a solution to the problem. If the anxiety and the fear of the moment just rules the day, we won't worship. Abraham and Sarah went 13 years without talking to God. They went 13 years without worship. For 13 years, they'd been, trying, they'd been too busy trying to fix their own problems in life. They'd been too busy fixating on the problem. And God shows up and he says, fixate on me. Walk blamelessly, to walk blamelessly before God. You have to fixate on him. God says, fixate on me. And when Abraham did that, the only thing he could do was worship. All he could do was worship. And within one year, within one year of this incident, within one year of God appearing to Abraham, and within one year of Abraham falling down to worship God as El Shaddai, Isaac was born. The promise was fulfilled. One more thing, because it didn't stop here. That's the second time I've said one more thing tonight, but this really is the one more thing. Turn to Genesis 28. And you're going to have to turn to one more scripture, but it's still all in one more thing. Genesis 28. Look at verse 1. It says, then Isaac, who's Isaac? The fulfillment of the promise, right? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him. Now look at verse 3. May God Almighty bless you. Who is God Almighty? That's El Shaddai. How did Isaac know about El Shaddai? His daddy told him. Look at Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. Isaac told Jacob about El Shaddai. It's the only way he could know about him. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 1, And Jacob called his sons and said, skip to verse 25, By the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you. What does Almighty mean in Hebrew? It is Shaddai. El Shaddai. How did Jacob know about El Shaddai? His daddy had to have told him. You see, our kids, no matter how old they are, whether they're still at home, whether they're grown, whatever they are, our kids need to know that God is El Shaddai. Our kids need to know that God is sensitive to the cries of His children. They need to know that He is strong enough to supply the answer. But just like this morning, 
There's a one-question test that unlocks the power of the name. And that question is this. Are you willing to walk in obedience before him? Is there anything before we're dismissed? If not, if you'll stand and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer.